We continue our Advent series as a church titled The Mosaic of Christmas, where we're looking at the four gospel witnesses to Jesus' birth. And we're running with this illustration that the four gospels are a lot like a mosaic. Uh, They are complementary, not contradictory. And just as the different parts of a mosaic fit together to create a fuller, more beautiful portrait, so the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when read together, present a full, complete picture of Jesus Christ. And today we uh, look at the next gospel account in our Bibles, that is the gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, we're covering just one verse today, one sentence. And uh, when I told my wife this, preparing for the message this week, uh, you need to know that my wife's a note taker. And so when I told her I'm covering just one verse, her biggest concern, and rightfully so, was whether or not I'll have enough points for the note takers to write down. Uh, But there's good news for both my wife and all the other note takers out there. And uh, I'll have four points from Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And so we'll get there in just a minute. The reality is that Mark chapter 1, verse 1 is one of the densest sentences In the whole New Testament. There's a lot there, and we're gonna unpack it in our time together today. But prior to getting to that, I wanna give you some context for Mark's gospel. You remember uh, last week where we talked about how the four gospels were written with a specific purpose and with a specific people group, audience in mind. And so to understand Mark's gospel, it's helpful if we have some context, and so very quickly want to give you five features of Mark's gospel, five features of Mark's gospel to lay a foundation for us. The first feature of Mark's gospel is this. Mark is one of the three synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the three synoptic gospels in your New Testament. And the word synoptic is a Greek word that means seeing with or seeing together. And they're called the Synoptic Gospels because Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a lot of common material, just from a slightly different perspective or angle. And so that's, uh, Mark is one of the three Synoptic Gospels. Mark is also the shortest and the first Gospel written. Uh, Mark is just 16 chapters long. It's a very short biography of Jesus' life. And it was actually written just r- under 30 years after the events took place. Uh, Mark was written some 30 years after uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Matthew and Luke wrote probably five or ten years after Mark, and then John was written about 20 years after that. So that's a general timeline for when the four Gospels were written. Uh, The third feature of Mark's Gospel is that it's often called the Action Gospel. Uh, If you've ever read the Gospel of Mark, you'll notice it's pretty fast-paced. In fact, by the end of chapter 1, Jesus is already fully grown. He's already called his first disciples, and he's casting out demons and healing the sick. That's chapter 1. It's called the Action Gospel because the word immediately is used some 40 times throughout the Gospel. It's Mark's favorite word. Uh, It's very fast-paced. And so if you're not a big reader or you need a lot to keep your attention, encourage you to start by reading the book of Mark. It's the action gospel. The fourth feature of Mark's gospel is that it was written primarily for non-Jewish Romans. 
It was written primarily for non-Jewish Romans. And so you'll notice Mark is a lot different from Matthew in that Matthew is concerned with how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? Now, Mark is concerned with this, but he's more concerned with answering the question that his Roman audience would want answered. The Romans to whom Mark wrote would be concerned with, is this Jesus worthy of the allegiance of the most powerful empire in the known world? And that's the question Mark answers throughout his gospel. It's written primarily for non-Jewish Romans. And the fifth and final feature of Mark's gospel is this. Mark presents Jesus as the authoritative Son of God. Mark is a strong gospel. Mark is a power-packed gospel. Mark makes the case, makes the claim that Jesus is the authoritative Son of God and is in fact worthy of our allegiance. And that's actually Mark's central theme of his witness to Jesus' arrival. The central theme that we're going to see in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, our time together today is this. Jesus is the authoritative Son of God. Jesus is the authoritative Son of God. So, uh, go with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what we're unpacking today. Mark begins his gospel by saying this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A dense statement, a rich statement. We're going to look at that today. In this short verse, Mark makes four claims. Four claims concerning the arrival of Jesus. And he invites us to consider these claims. He makes the claim in Mark 1 verse 1 and then unpacks it throughout the rest of the gospel. As we look at these four claims today, I want to invite you to do the same. I want to invite you to consider what Mark is saying about the person and work of Jesus this Christmas season. And so we look first at the first claim that Mark makes in this dense statement. First is this, the arrival of Jesus is the mark of a new beginning. It's the mark of a new beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now notice that Mark does not say the beginning of Jesus Christ. No, he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is an important nuance. We can't get this wrong. Uh, Mark, in saying the beginning of the gospel and not saying the beginning of Jesus Christ, what, what Mark is saying is that Jesus is the eternal God without beginning and without end. The ancient creed, the Nicene Creed of AD 325 says, Jesus is begotten, not made. That is, he is begotten of God's essential nature and not created like man and woman. Many throughout history have gotten this truth wrong. Well, Mark's audience, writing to first century Romans, well, the Romans would say that Jesus was a Jewish revolutionary, but only Caesar, the emperor, was God. Or Islam says Jesus was a prophet, but he was not God. We also have Jehovah Witnesses who say Jesus was the highest of God's creation. They will even say Jesus was a God, but he is not equal with God. But what does Scripture say? 
Well, John chapter 1 verse 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 2 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 says Jesus was in the form that is literally the essential nature of God. Or Paul also in Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 19 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And so we see that Jesus, according to the biblical witness, according even to Mark's statement, is the eternal God without beginning, without end, fully equal in nature with God the Father. So we know what Mark is not saying, but what is he saying? Well, he's saying the arrival of Jesus is the mark of a new beginning. The arrival of Jesus is the mark of a new beginning for humanity. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that on page one, Genesis chapter one, verse one, it starts out by saying what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so just as in Genesis one, in the beginning God created all that we see and all that is in existence, so in Mark chapter one, verse one, he's picking up on this theme and saying the arrival of Jesus is a kind of new creation. It's a kind of new beginning for humanity. This is Genesis 1-1 language. And I want to tell you that this is great news for humanity. I think about what the Apostle Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? a new creation. And so Mark is saying, the arrival of Jesus is like turning to the next chapter in human history. It's the inauguration of a recreation, of a new beginning. It's redemptive in nature. That's the claim that Mark makes. The arrival of Jesus is the mark of a new beginning. The second claim that Mark makes concerning the arrival of Jesus is this. The arrival of Jesus is the announcement of good news. He says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word gospel is a word that means good news. And you need to remember that Mark wrote to a Roman audience. He had uh, Roman soldiers and Roman citizens in mind when he wrote his gospel. And it's interesting to note that when the great revered uh, Roman emperor Caesar Augustus was born, uh, a decree, a letter was sent out to the entire Roman Empire describing Caesar Augustus' birth as a gospel proclamation. said, look at the gospel news we have to tell you. A new emperor Caesar Augustus was born and he will one day rule in the Roman Empire. And Mark uses this language to describe the arrival of Jesus Christ. He says the beginning of what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. What's Mark's claim? The arrival of Jesus is 
a royal announcement of good news for the world. And what a, what a bold claim. Okay, Mark is writing as a resident of the most powerful dominant empire the world has ever known. And Mark claims in chapter 1, verse 1, top of the page, he says, The arrival of Jesus is good news, gospel, on par with, and in fact superior to, the birth of Roman royalty. The arrival of Jesus is the announcement of good news. And this claim still remains bold and offensive today, doesn't it? The arrival of Jesus is good news that in Mark's day surpassed the birth announcement of a Roman emperor. Still today, the arrival of Jesus is good news, gospel, that surpasses the value of any governmental system, of any economic system, of any cultural reality. The arrival of Jesus is good news. It was for Mark's day. It has continued as an announcement of good news in our day. It's good news for you today. It's good news that Jesus arrived into human history. So the beginning of the gospel, the third mark, excuse me, the third claim that Mark makes concerning the arrival of Jesus is this. Jesus arrives as the fulfillment of God's salvation. The fulfillment of God's salvation. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are two terms, Jesus and Christ. One is a name. Jesus was, uh, that was his birth name. And then a title. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, it is in fact a title. It's a declaration concerning the work and nature of Jesus. And these are two terms with significant biblical meaning. We'd maybe call these uh, loaded names. I'll give you an example today. Um, if, if you're called Einstein, that's a loaded name. Uh, it generally means you're very smart and probably have more degrees than Fahrenheit. Okay, or maybe a negative example, still a loaded name, uh, Hitler. That's a loaded name. There's a lot of baggage and a lot of context that goes with that name. If you are in the know, you understand what's behind that name. And so for math, uh, excuse me, Mark's audience, saturated in the scriptures, knowing their Bibles, they would know that Jesus Christ is a significant biblical name, significant biblical title. We know that Jesus, it's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua, and it literally means God is salvation. That's his name. And then you have his title, Christ. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. And Messiah literally means anointed one or deliverer. And so here's Mark's claim. The arrival of Jesus marks the fulfillment of God's salvation. It's in his very name. It's in his very title. Jesus, 
Well, he's God's salvation. He's the savior for God's people. We looked at Matthew chapter one, a major theme in Matthew last week, that Jesus will save his people from their sins. But Jesus is also called the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed kingly deliverer for God's people. He is indeed the fulfillment of God's salvation. The fourth and final claim from Mark chapter 1 verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The arrival of Jesus is the revelation of God's unique Son. Son of God. We know this is an important title for Jesus, but maybe we don't fully know why it's an important title for Jesus. And I want to very briefly give you two reasons. The title Son of God is important to describing the nature and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first reason is this, the title Son of God differentiates Jesus from the rest of creation. The title Son of God differentiates Jesus from the rest of creation. I'll explain it to you this way. Uh, Throughout Scripture, Galatians 4, Romans chapter 8, uh, believers, you and me, are called children or sons of God. And we become sons of God by adoption. God adopts us into his family. That's, that's what happens at salvation. We place our faith in Jesus and we are adopted, called children of God. That's an adoptive privilege. But Jesus was not adopted into God's family. No, Jesus is differentiated from the rest of creation because he is the Son of God eternally by his very nature. You and I are adopted into God's family. Jesus is the unique Son of God by nature. It's essential to who he is. He cannot be otherwise. So it differentiates him from the rest of creation. Second reason Mark uses the title Son of God in Mark chapter 1 verse 1 is this. The title Son of God means he carries the authority of God the Father. It's a claim of authority. It's a father-son relationship in which the son has authority on his own, but he has even more authority. His word is even more trustworthy when he has the backing and the authority of the name of his father. You'll see this all throughout the four gospels that uh, Jesus, as he's interacting with the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, he will often say, I come in the authority and the name to do the will of my Father. The Pharisees would say, Jesus is just a man. Don't make these claims, you're just another man. And Jesus says, you, you don't know my Father because I come to do the will of my Father. I have the backing of my Father. And so the title Son of God means he carries God's authority. He's the authoritative, unique Son of God. And so Mark's claim very simply is that the arrival of Jesus reveals God's unique son. He is the son of God. Jesus is no ordinary man. Don't miss this. Jesus is, in fact, the God-man, the eternal son of God. And so this brings us back to 
the central theme of Mark's gospel that we looked at a few moments ago. The start and finish, the sum total, the essential purpose of Mark's gospel is to show that Jesus is the authoritative Son of God. And as we wrap up, Mark has presented Jesus to us in just one verse, in just a few words, as the title of his gospel account, he makes four radical, bold, revolutionary claims concerning the person and work, the arrival of Jesus Christ. Mark shows in that one sentence that Jesus is, his arrival is the mark of a new beginning. It's the announcement of good news. His arrival is the fulfillment of God's salvation. And his arrival is the revelation of God's unique Son. He's presented Jesus to us, he's made his claims. And so I want to ask you, how will you respond? We believe that God initiates. God moves toward us before we ever move toward Him. Further, we believe that God has initiated. God has acted in history through the person, work, and arrival of Jesus Christ. How do we respond? Can I invite you to respond in faith? And when I say respond in faith, I don't mean some blind leap into the dark. I don't mean some submission to a set of rules that religion prescribes us. No, when I say, will you respond in faith, I mean three things. Faith is first, knowledge. We have to know the one in whom we believe before we can ever believe. Mark's presented Jesus. We need to know who he is. The second component of faith is conviction. Faith is not just mental assent. It's not just grabbing hold of logic. Faith surpasses knowledge and moves to a conviction. That is, we must believe that Jesus is who he says he is. We must believe that his sinless life, substitutionary death, and bodily resurrection really happened and really matters. Conviction. But then faith also entails trust. It's not enough just to know who Jesus is, nor is it enough just to believe firmly in your heart that Jesus is who he says he is, but faith acts. Faith moves. 
And so we must trust. We must entrust our life to the giver of life, Jesus Christ. Mark has presented Jesus to us. God has initiated, he has acted in history by giving Jesus to the world. For the world. How will you respond this Christmas season? Will you respond in faith, knowledge of who Jesus is, believing that his sinless life, substitutionary death, and bodily resurrection is sufficient to save, and then trusting, trusting Christ with your life? I invite you to weigh this, consider these claims as we conclude in prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in this moment, I believe that you are working on hearts, in living rooms, in vehicles, in the lunchroom. In this moment, would you give the gift of faith by your grace to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see that Jesus is in fact the sinless Savior, that Jesus did in fact live a sinless life that we could not live, that Jesus did in fact die a death that we deserve to die because of our sin in our place, and that Jesus did in fact, to validate all of this, rise again to give new life to all who would place their faith in him. But we know that this faith is a gift. God, would you give the gift of faith to your people in this moment. We repent of our sin and we turn to Jesus and say we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the essence of Christmas and we thank you for this season where we can fix our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. Seal this truth in our hearts today. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.